0: If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 1 instead of beginning with verse 25. Um, we're studying today, particularly the verse 28, that is known so many by so many in American Christian circles. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. One of the reasons that I love Scripture is that Scripture is so, so accurate in diagnosing who I am. And by that I mean that it doesn't cover up my sinfulness and my weakness and my perversity and my rebellion and my pride, but it actually does nail me. <clears throat> uh, sometimes you'll hear people arguing about the inspiration of Scripture, particularly when it comes to proofs for God or it comes to evolution and things like that. And, and what I would like to know from... The scientists, um, in other words, the priests of our culture, is I'd like to know how on earth uh, you get to the point of evolving sufficiently that you document your own perversity in a book and leave it for posterity. It doesn't sound to me like something that the survival of the fittest would 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 do. You know, I've got an idea so that my great 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 grandchildren can read about how stupid and proud and self-seeking and insensitive I am, I think I'll write down the worst thing I ever did. And that's what you find again and again. And you find accounts of people being perverse. Now, if you have been uh, pandered to, you know, uh, if people have flattered you your whole life and you don't know you're perverse, I want to encourage you, this is the right church to be in. Because you cannot come to Christ except under the cross as you see your perversity. We call it depravity. We call it original sin. We call it a whole bunch of things. But it's one of the wonderful privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ to look at who we are, to admit it, and then to be ransomed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to be ransomed from something and our ransoming is from our sin. Now, that's why that's my explanation about why I want us to start by reading the beginning of this chapter because this verse I just recited to you, you many of you know it by heart, you know. But what's the context? You know, if we believe all scripture is profitable, that would include what comes next to what. And if you look at what it comes next to, it's really interesting. So let's start from the beginning of the chapter. And read, for the kingdom of heaven, this is the word of God and it is eternally true, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, Jesus is speaking, telling a story, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And so the last shall be first and the first last. Now, any of you that say that this story doesn't touch you in your heart and your mind need to get to know yourself a little bit better. Because... Uh, what we see when we look at ourselves carefully, we look in our own hearts, is that we see that the battle cry of the French Revolution owns us ideologically. Completely. We are people who believe in what? In fact, let's have Lucas say it in French. It sounds so mellifluous. Okay, come on, Lucas, say it loudly so everybody can hear it. One more time. Doesn't that just give you chills? <laughs> That's why I can't stand the bench. Everything's so pretty with them. Don't worry. It's true, but it doesn't matter. Liberty. Fraternity, equality. Now, we all know that we're the land of liberty, right? What about fraternity and what about that big one, equality? Deep in our hearts, we are convinced that we understand equality. And so consequently, we judge God and we judge every text of Scripture by our standards. And our standards aren't biblical, they're cultural. And the standard is that God must be fair. And we define the fairness. This is one of the reasons that we have such trouble with the concept of the decrees of God and predestination. Well, how could you judge and send to hell people who never had a chance? That doesn't conform to my idea of fairness. You say, well, where did you get your idea of fairness? You say, well, from my mother's womb i'm american you know i don't know it just seems right well if you look at this story here it doesn't seem right think about the heat of the day think about the heat we had a couple of weeks ago how hot it was and so the ones that are bearing the brunt of the heat during the day sweat pouring off of them they're dead tired at the end of the day and then they get paid the exact same amount as the other people You can imagine as they see the people that have worked just a couple hours getting a denarius, they're thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to get better paid. You know, I'm going to get more than I thought I was going to get. And then they're given the same and they're mad. Why are they mad? Well, because it isn't fair. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, basically, if the owner wants to be what? Generous. Now, let me ask you this question. Has God been generous to you? And if you, answer the, if you give me the answer no, he's just giving me what's fair, I say you don't know Jesus Christ. You are not a believer. You don't know him. Because the beginning of spiritual life is recognizing that there is no standard that we match up to. And that if God were fair, that we would be thrown into the bottomless pit of hell, and there would be no hope for us. If you think your wife is fair with you, you haven't begun to understand yourself. Your wife is a walking, talking, loving gift from God to you. And if she gave you what you deserve in your relationship, you would never get anything from her. If you think that your parents are fair to you or unfair to you, you don't begin to understand the nature of having parents and being a child. There's nothing fair about it. Any mother will tell you that. Do you understand this? And so those of you, and I know there are many of you because I love you, those of you who are struggling to be submissive to your parents... And by the way, the reason I know you struggle with this is because, guess what? This very large 53-year-old man just a few years ago was a 15-year-old who made his mother's life miserable. All right? If you struggle to submit and to honor and to love your parents, be encouraged that this too God will give you and plead with Him for it. Plead with Him for it. Plead with him to give you a joyful and submissive spirit. So if we even look at our human relationships, fathers and mothers, what did our mother give to us? Can we give back to her? No. The fact is you would have to what? Diaper your mother in her old age for how many years? And then you'd have to have her hanging at your breast for how many years? And then you'd have to go through what kind of labor? Can you ever pay your mother back? No, you can never pay your mother back. You can never pay her back. And then we go to God, and there's absolutely no way. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. What perfect and good gifts? The weather this last week. The food that you ate. The bagel with cream cheese. The honey. The ability to walk. The healing from the tennis elbow. The fact that your arthritis is painful, but that your knees still work. The fact that your husband forgave you. The fact that your mother taught you from the time you were at her knee to love Jesus Christ. The fact that you are in church today hearing the Word of God. That you're not one of these people who despises it and is off on the soccer field, on the basketball court, preparing for another Notre Dame disaster, you know. The fact that you're in the house of God and that you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Every one of these things is a gift from God. And so it gets to the end of the story and they're all given a denarius. And the fact is that denarius stands for God's grace to us. And any grace we get from God, being able to wake in the morning and have breath, being able to watch us on anything we have, even toothpicks, are God's kindness to us. Every breath we take, the fact that the universe coheres, that it holds together, it's not a scientific fact, it's a divine fact. Because if God for one second stopped holding the universe together, it would go kerplooey. Right? And so Jesus says, why do you resent my generosity? Now, look what happened. The, the message is clear, right? And then... It says what? The last shall be first. Jesus ends with the application and the first last. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Now, why is he going up to Jerusalem? He's going up to Jerusalem from the holy day of the Jews called Passover. What is Passover in commemoration of? Passover is in commemoration of the night when God in... A great battle with Pharaoh and the Egyptians finally dealt them the death blow. And the death blow was, he told his people, take a lamb without blemish. You know, don't take the lamb with a gammy leg. Don't take the lamb that has bad markings. Don't take the lamb that's sick all the time. Take a perfect lamb, kill it, and take its blood and put it over your door. You know, on the frame, on the trim. And if you do this, I'm going to go through the land tonight and I will kill all of the firstborn sons. You put that blood over your door and I will spare your son. And so those who were among the people of God didn't have thoughts about blood. And God said, "Okay, spiritually, it's the same thing as having blood. And so your thoughts are good enough. They didn't have spiritual thoughts. What they did was they took an animal, they killed it, and they took the blood, and they painted the doorposts with the blood. And that night, when the angel of death went through the land and killed all the firstborn sons imagine the wailing in the land that night that angel did what? That angel passed over the homes covered by the blood. What can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so they're up to Jerusalem, and they're going to celebrate the Passover. Now, you remember that when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven and said what? This is my beloved son. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What were the, the, the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, to name their son? Jesus, Yahshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And so they're on their way up to Jerusalem. They're going to celebrate the Passover. Right at the center is blood on the doorposts. And so their sons do not die. They're going up to Jerusalem on the way. People from all over the world coming to celebrate the Passover. On the way, Jesus says what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says this. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, verse 17. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them what? He said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now, this is not the first time he's told them what's happening. In Matthew 16:21 it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew 17:12 but I say to you that Elijah already came And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. Again, he said, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So now we look at the text and we see that he not only reiterates what he said before, but he adds some new details. What are the new details that he adds? Well, he says, the chief priests and scribes, they will deliver him and they will condemn him to death. Same old information, but 19 and will hand him over to the Gentiles to what? To mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So it's not just a question of him dying, but now it's crucifixion. <coughs> uh, there used to be an atheist young woman that, was, that used to sort of be a, a bigwig in Madison where I did my undergraduate work at UW. And uh, her name was Annie Laurie Gaylor. Some of you maybe remember the name. And uh, I remember reading an article where she talked about uh, how much she hated the cross, Because the atheists have spent years trying to get crosses off of soldad, trying to get crosses off of seals. You know, I really think that one of the most ironic moments in my 15 years in Bloomington was the church that we used to worship in across from the state patrol post, right? You know what I'm going to say. it wasn't the most beautiful building in the world. I don't know if people know it, but it's actually modeled very closely on uh, um, Frank Lloyd Wright's church up in Madison. Uh, and I, Mary Lee and I once were asked to, to be the custodian of that church, and you took a tour through it, and it was like, no. Um, <laughs> anyhow, coming up out of... And this was different than Frank Lloyd Wright. That that window is out of Frank Lloyd Wright's church. But coming up out of that, if you remember, was a great big steel girder that was made into a cross. Huge steel coming up right out of the top. And the university bought the building, right? What did they do? Immediately cut off the top of the cross. Well, I guess they showed us. And so, consequently, every time I look at it, it's so obviously something looking for something on the top that I think more cross than I ever would have thought if they'd left the cross on it, <laughs> you know? Every time I go by there, I, you know, bear my cross, you know? Um, and so we think of the cross, and Annie, Annie Laurie Gaylor used to say, you know, what, what on earth? You know, are we going to take an electric chair and we're going to put it on all our seals and on the top of our mountains, That's a good, good statement. That's what the cross was. The only thing is, when you're electrocuted, you're dressed. When you're crucified, you're not. When you're electrocuted, it happens in the privacy of a prison with only a few people allowed to watch. When you're crucified, you're taken to like 10th and the bypass. Or the square. And everybody sees you naked as you die. Now, this is what Jesus is going to do. And then he adds the details that he's also going to be mocked and scourged. Now, what was the response of the disciples? Put yourself in their position. Most of us have at one time or another loved a man, a man-man. We've loved our fathers. We've loved the man we work for. I've had some great men that I work for, and I loved them. And you think about the disciples being with Jesus for three years, and you think, did they love him? And the answer is, yeah, they loved him. They adored him. When he said that Peter would betray him, what did Peter do? Peter said, I'll never betray him. I'll never turn aside from you. Why? Because Peter loved him. It's inconceivable to me that I would do that to you, Lord Jesus. What about John? It shows in the Last Supper that John was doing what? He was reclining on Jesus' breast. You know, real men really do kiss each other. It's hard for their wives to believe it. And those kisses are very tender. You look at Paul and Miletus meeting with the Ephesian elders. He tells them they're never going to see him again. And what happens? They all put their arms around him and they cry and they kiss him. You look at Joseph going out to meet his father and it says that they cried and that they're, they're just this. now th- think of Jesus. That his disciples love him. We're going up. I've been warning you the day is coming. And it says they were grieved at other places. We're going up to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be scourged. And I'm going to be turned over to the goyim, the dirty Gentiles. And they are going to crucify me. So where were the hearts of the disciples? If this was a movie, this is the time the violins would start playing. You know, and we'd all see the love and they'd pat his head and comb his hair and, you know, Sing him songs to comfort his heart. So what did the disciples do? (laughs) Okay, come on. Look, look, look. What does it say? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Notice the word then. (laughs) So, Seth, do you see yourself in that? Then. You do. It is you. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command it in your kingdom. These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now, in all your wildest dreams, would you expect that to be your response to this poignant moment when the string players are going their best? You can't conceive of it. I think at that moment I'll ask if my sons can be seated in the principal positions of honor in heaven. You're going to die, so what? Can my sons sit on your right and left hand in heaven? What a mother. Or, what a mother. (laughs) You know, unbelievable jealousy for her children. God made you that way, it's good. But this particular time, it's not maybe completely good. You know, can I have the place of preeminence for my sons? Now, if it was one of the obscure disciples she was asking for, I'd be able to handle it better. But hey, who is it? It's James and John. John! The beloved disciple, the one who has his head on the breast of Jesus, the one that is referred to in the Gospel of John, in a circumlocution, the one is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Not referring to himself. This is John. That's all right. It's his mother. And no man can control his mother. Mom, would you please? And so obviously they were dying a thousand deaths thinking, oh, there she goes again. <laughs> oh, man. I used to say to Rita Cuffey, Rita, your son and me, I We are not perfect. But Rita wouldn't believe me. She thought I was perfect. She was my mother. You know? Actually, though, I've misled you intentionally. And if you look at the text, you'll know what I'm talking about. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And then notice the next word. What is it? They said to him, we are able. So are we able to escape the embarrassment of the moment by saying that the mother was being a mother? No, we're not. Because it says they said to him. It's clear that the mother and the sons came together. Right? They put her up to it. And we have another indication of that if you keep reading where it says They said, we are able. He said to them, verse 23, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left. This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with Siloam. But that's not what the text says. The text says the ten became indignant with them. Now, you know why they became indignant, right? They became indignant because... Jesus had just said that he would be crucified. And how could anybody take this moment of such tragedy and such sorrow, such a piteous moment, and pervert it by using it for their own self-benefit? And so the other disciples were furious because they loved Jesus. And here, James and John were showing their true colors. They'd always known this about James and John. I mean, all this love and affection and kindness and tenderness between John and Jesus was just a show. You know, John was not really a lover. John was actually a very selfish man. If If you look at his motives, every time that he'd be quiet and humble and tender with Jesus, it was just a show. I know these silent people. I know what they're really like. Peter's the one that really loved Jesus, the loud guy, you know. And here, John's showing himself up again. He wants the seat of preeminence. Look at John. That's who John is. I knew that all along. John, get it together, dude. This guy is going to die. He is telling us that it's going to happen soon because it's in Jerusalem, and we're walking there, and he's going to be scourged, and he's going to be mocked, and what are you doing? You're asking to be seated on his right and left hand. John, get it together! What is wrong with you, John? But, as a matter of fact, the disciples weren't concerned about what was going on because of their love for Jesus. Because what Jesus then says to the disciples makes it very clear what was going on in their minds. It wasn't their love for Jesus that caused them to be angry, was it? No. No. It was what? What? You know, James and John were trying to get a leg up on them, and they were furious. That's all it was. Why did you make him the boss? Why can't I be the boss? Well, her mother lets her go. Why can't I go? Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And that word is the same root as our word deacon, diaconia. All right? It's to be your servant. But he hasn't gone down the whole way yet because he then says, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your... Jill, say the word. No, 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 no. No. Come on, Jill, say the word doula. <laughs> That's the Greek slave. The woman that sits next to a woman in childbirth and does absolutely anything she needs. And that's Jesus. And what do we need? What we need is to have the burden of our sin taken from us. We need somebody that will ransom us from our sin and from the judgment that it requires by a holy and just God. And then we hit this verse, just as the son of man, Jesus says, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, do you remember I said at the beginning how much I love scripture because it diagnoses me correctly? It never lies. Remember how I said survival of the fittest would never give you a book like this? Because it's where people record all of their worst and most despicable actions. Things like cutting up a woman and sending her pieces out across Israel. Things like offering your daughter in Sodom to protect your guest. Things like passing your wife off as your sister. Things like betraying Jesus because you're afraid and intimidated by a teenage girl at the fire outside the Sanhedrin. Things like taking one of your soldier's wives and then trying to make, him make it look as if she's pregnant by him by bringing him home and then killing him when he won't go along with it and doing it in a hypocritical and deceptive way. And if you look at any of these things and you say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I I would never do something like that. Those of you who are men, all I ask you to do is be self-observant when you drive a car. Because you're one of two kinds of drivers. You're either an aggressive one who would murder if you could get away with it to get there quicker. Or you're one of these selfish drivers that is oblivious to everyone else on the road and goes at your own pace. There is no altruistic driver. And you laugh and you say, well, okay, you know, that's why they have traffic cops. And I say, before a holy God, your driving would condemn you eternally to hell. You are a murderer because every time you say you fool to the person that doesn't go through the roundabout quickly enough, you have murdered him. You have murdered him. That's what the Bible says. And you say, oh, come on, nobody can hold you to a standard like that. It would be impossible to achieve. I say, so again, God's about fairness. That's what God's about. God doesn't expect anything more out of us than what we can do in our own strength of our own volition. Is this your nature, the nature of God? That God's reasonable and that God only judges us for the things that we intentionally and willfully and rebelliously do. You know, that's the only thing God judges us for. And you know, that's why Dobson says, don't spank a baby for not doing what's right and what's the baby's being rebellious. And therefore, don't spank a baby until he's 15. And by the way, then he's too old to spank. Now, that's not what Dobson says, but you get my point. There has to be willful rebellion. So a mother spends her entire life looking at her child, trying to see if the child is willfully rebelling. As if there's any other kind of rebellion. <laughs> you know, I remember looking at Michael. Sweet, dear Kind Michael, obedient, submissive, perfect Michael. And she's sitting in her high chair and she won't eat. You tell her to eat. You take her and spank her for not eating. Because month after month, her mother feeds her. Her mother's food gets cold while Michael won't eat. So finally, one day, I'm going to handle it. Michael, you will eat or I will spank you. Yes, Daddy. All the response is perfect. Yes, Daddy. Cheerful. Yes, Daddy. She doesn't eat. This brain, you know, you go, this can't be rebellion because it's, yes, daddy. And so because you said you were going to do it and because you have habits, you take her and spank her because she doesn't eat, right? You put her back in the high church. She's crying. You're crying. Everybody's crying, you know, because she's, yes, daddy, and she's beautiful. And she picks up her spoon and you go, oh, thank God. Takes one bite, sets it down again. You go, oh, now what's this about? And then you think, oh, my wife is going to think I'm a monster. And then you think, yeah, but I can't give in. And then you think, yeah, but this isn't willful rebellion. And then you think, well, what else would you call it? And then you think, yeah, but the kids will be angry at me. And I'm a sinner and I didn't help set the table. And then you think, she's got to start eating and you've started the job, you've got to finish it. And you think, well, not necessarily. You know, and you think, But she's rebelling. And you think, no, she's not rebelling. She just has, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. You think, no, 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 no. Obedience is doing what you're told. She's not obeying. That's rebellion. Michael, if you don't eat now and keep eating, I will spank you again. Yes, Daddy! One bite, no more eating. Michael, did you hear me? Normally, there's no more second warning from me with my kids. But Michael, Michael... Now, Michael, did you hear me? Yes, Daddy. Will you eat? Yes, Daddy. One bite. She's not eating, right? Now, at that point, you have to decide whether you believe in the holiness of God. You must decide whether God's holiness matters. Do you understand me? God has said, That you are not to take his name in vain. Do you know what one of the most frequent ways we take God's name in vain is? We talk about how we felt led to do something. When we didn't feel led at all, we simply wanted to do something, but we attribute it to God speaking to us directly. And it's taking God's name in vain. We talk about how we prayed and then did something. We talk about how the Spirit led us, you know. another Or we tell jokes. and And every single joke that uses the name of God to create humor among us is taking God's name in vain. Do you realize this? Oh, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Everybody does it. The preacher does it. The elders do it. The Titus Two women do it. Charles Stanley does it. No, there's nothing wrong with. I mean, come on, don't be petty, Tim, and God, don't be petty. I honor you. Tell me a little joke isn't an indication of lack of honor of you. Just because I use the name Jesus or God in a joke, I mean, that's not you. That's just somebody standing in for you for the purpose of, of having fun and laughing. God, don't be so rigid. So Michael, yes, Daddy. Do I believe in the holiness of God? Do I believe that as she learns to honor her father, that she will learn to honor God? Do I believe that it's helpful for her to see that yes daddy with only one bite as an attack upon the one who created her? And it's not about me and it's not about my wife. It's about God, her father. So guess what? She gets spanked a third time. By then, my wife is in full-blown rebellion, and so are her children. So I tell her to take her children, go outside. Why? Because I can't handle dealing with them and with Michael at the same time. Because why? Because I'm on the verge of of self-destructing the dissonance of my wife, my children, and this, yes, daddy, and God. And it's like too much for me. Right? And so what do I do? I spank her four times. And the four spanking was wonderful because I didn't have to deal with the other people that disapproved of my actions. And she still didn't eat. But she was still cheerful and sweet and beautiful. And I thought, no, she will learn to obey. And it wasn't about me. And so I spanked her one more time. And I really did hurt her. And then she learned the nature of a submissive heart. It's not enough to say yes, Daddy. You have to eat. You have to eat. You know? And to put you out of your tension... That's the only time I ever remember spanking Michael. And it was five quick ones right in a row. And afterwards, I went outside, and Mary Lee and the children all were very happy I finished the job. They just couldn't handle being there, so I sent them out. And they all agreed that it was the right thing to do. I said, if if I told you Michael's now in there eating and that we'll never have a problem with her eating again, would you then tell me that what what I did was right? And they're all going, yes. And I said, well, then next time, please don't punish me. Please don't punish me. Would you help me? Because I'm crying as I'm talking to them. (laughs) Finally, I can be weak, which I was the whole time, but I had a vision of God. Do you understand this? We come to the text. We look at the disciples. We look at Salome. We look at the mother. We look at these workers. We see ourselves in the workers. They resent the generosity of God. We look at the whole thing and we say, that's me. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, what does that me bring us to? And the whole world says to us, nothing. There are no consequences for anything anymore. You can defy God and get away with it. Because death is just a natural process. Embrace it. Oh. We're pandered to, in the State of the Union addresses, we're pandered to. In the 4th of July celebrations, we're pandered to by our English professors. We're pandered to even in microbiology, for heaven's sakes. We're pandered to in the newspapers and the television shows. Everywhere the world is in an orgy of denial of the justice and holiness of our Creator. And then we come to the text that says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we all know that ransom is a good-sounding word for Christians, you know. Yeah, ransom. Yeah, I, I'm into that, you know. And yet none of us have seen our, our depravity. And when, we, when I try to preach to you depravity, you say, preacher, I've had a hard week encourage me and i say here's the encouragement so wanted her sons on the right and left hand of jesus right after he got done telling him that he was going to be crucified he was going to be mocked he was going to be scourged isn't that encouraging and you say no it's not encouraging it's a downer it's negative it's discouraging it's all the d words i say no it's encouraging because it's you And right after that, he says that he is giving his life as a ransom for many. And if you will stop denying it and stop listening to all the people that flatter you and pander you and admit who you are, you then can look to Jesus Christ and be ransomed. And you're done. You don't have to lie anymore. When your mother tells you you're a nice boy, you can say, no, I ain't. And when your teachers give you an A, and now they say, I was reading an article this last week, they say it was an article from my alma mater, UW-Madison. They went through all the uh, admissions process, and they said there are some states now where every single application they get from that state has a four-point average. What is this? Is it that all of a sudden, students in America are disciplined, and their parents are holding them accountable for their homework? It's called great inflation. What's great inflation? It's called pandering. What's pandering? It's flattery. No one who flatters you is ever your friend. And the Bible doesn't flatter me. (laughs) Every time I open the pages, I see me. My mother. And she's not nice. And the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a, a what? A luotron. Now what is ransom? Well, in Greek, everybody knew what this word meant. There was absolutely no confusion over the meaning of this word ransom" in Greek. None. Now why does this matter? this matters, again, because the world denies the gospel. And one of the ways it denies it is by saying that Jesus came to show us what a good moral man could be or what a good prophet could be to lead us to have heavenly thoughts about the nature of God, the nature of spirituality, the nature of religion. In other words, that Jesus came to be a great moral teacher, a great example of divinity in man. But that's not why Jesus came. He said why he came. He said his name is to be Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And it says that he gives his life as a ransom. In other words, Jesus came to die. And so it matters whether the word there has significance, and it does. That was the word that was used in the ancient world to refer to prisoners of war and to slaves who were bought out of their captivity. And so, for instance, you'll find inscriptions like this, where it is said, incidentally, in part of the historical record, Charamon, to the Agoronomous, greeting, grant freedom to Euphratesine, a slave aged about 35 years, born in her owner's house of the slave Demetrius. She is being set at liberty by ransom by her mistress, Alloin, daughter of Common, son of Dionysius, and so forth. She's bought by her mistress out of her slavery, Luotron, And she is free. And so when Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, what he is telling us is that his death and his blood are the purchase of us from our slavery to sin and death and hell. Death is not a natural process. If you saw it, did any of you see the eagle on the the road? on the way here to see the eagle That's not natural you know a great raptor you know feared by all of the little mice and all of the little bunnies around and that majestic creature is dashed to the ground that is not God's plan and it is not God's plan that your mother whom you love with a perfect love almost, will one day die and the breath will stop. It is not God's plan that husbands and wives will be separated. It is not God's plan, this death. And I have to stop and say something here before I bring this to an end. Around this country, there are Christians who are murdering their relatives, murdering them. Because they've bought into this entire scandal of death being a natural process that we should all embrace. Remember what Jesus said about death. What does Paul say about death? They say it's the last enemy. And it is an enemy. And if you find yourself embracing death for yourself and for your relatives, what you're really doing is once again saying, God is not fair. I am master of my destiny. And I do not intend to suffer and be a burden to anyone. And that is godless. And you know, the most frequent way that's done is by saying, you know, if, I, if my life stops being meaningful, I'm going to sign a directive will and I'm going to say, I don't want a feeding tube. I don't want anything done to keep me alive. And so what happens? Well, what happens is, you say, I don't want a feeding tube. So you are still very much alive, very much thinking, very much... A creature made in the image of God. God is not killing you. Now, in the long term, He is. But, you know, you don't have acute cancer and you're going to die in 24, 48, or 72 hours. It's just your life is now a burden on your loved ones and the medical professionals. And what percent of health care dollars are spent in the last 30 days of life, Adam? A large amount. I remember the more than half... Okay. And so Christians say, well, I don't want to be a burden. And so don't insert a feeding tube. Don't insert a feeding tube. So how are you going to die? You're going to die at God's sovereign act or are you going to die of your own hand? And you say, well, you know, God's the one that's put me in a situation where I'm a burden. It's really his fault. I mean, his, I mean, well, it's a blessing really, you know, but don't give me a feeding tube. You say, Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God is the giver and taker of life. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. You say, oh, wait a second. Are you saying that it could be murder to not have a feeding tube? I say, ding dong. Yes. Feeding tubes are the way you get fed if you lose your ability to feed yourself. And you say, yeah, but it's artificial. And God doesn't want us to have artificial means. I say, no, 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 no. The real truth is you don't want to be humiliated and to become a baby to your children when you yourself took care of them when they were babies. The real issue is you don't want to spend your children's inheritance. The real issue is you don't want anybody telling you what to do. The real issue is you think life is not meaningful once you lose the ability to communicate and to control your bowels. But God made you and he made you in his image. And He is the giver and taker of life. And so it is wrong for us to say that it doesn't matter whether or not you starve yourself to death or dehydrate yourself to death. Because as long as you make the decision and you sign the document, that's your own prerogative. No, no, no. God made this world without sin and without death and without hell. And we live by God's decree. And we must look in the face of death. We must look in the face of suffering. And we must embrace it. What do you think Jesus meant when he said that whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me? Is that just the crosses we don't have any technological fix for? You know? I mean, really, you are dying right now. No matter your age, you're dying. So why not just take a slightly increasing morphine drip because it'll save you from a lot of rejection and finding a woman to marry? And that's pain. You know, how much pain are you going to get rid of? How much of the cross are you going to push off? Just at the end of life? You think somebody that makes that decision at the end of life has not been making that decision every single month of their lives prior to that? I don't want to be a burden. You know, no, 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 your mom and I will just stay at home. You go ahead and have a good time. You know, television goes on. People, look in the face of the disciples and their mother. Look in the face of the disciples in the upper room, striving amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest. Greatest. Look at the face of your relationship with your husband and your wife. Look at your rebellion towards your professors. Look at your rebellion against the elders. Look at your rebellion against speed limits. Look at who you are and then say to yourself, the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Who are you? You know that old Who song off Quadrophenia? Who? Who are you? Tell me who. Who are you? Jesus knows who you are. And Jesus has said that he came to ransom you. You need ransoming. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you clean again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So precious is the flow that made me white as snow. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. Are you one of the many? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Are you going to admit who you are and what you are? And shut your mouth and take the blood? Are you going to say, yes, Daddy and eat from this table. You can't come here with pride. You can't come here thinking about how you're better than James and John and your mother wouldn't have asked that. You can't come here denying your sin. If the elders would come, please.